Well, good evening. Thank you for coming back this evening. them and um, I don't know if I can preach because I'm not sure I'm can, I can breathe <laughs> so my text is Ephesians 5 14 where the Bible says awake thou that sleepest that's not really my text I'm just kidding um, but one of the one of the two hardest times to preach to an audience is right before lunch number one because everybody's hungry and wants you to quit and then right after you eat is the next hardest time or maybe that's reversed I'm not sure but Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 5, if you would, please. 2 Corinthians 5. We'll get there in a few moments. Um, <clears throat> let me give you a brief update on Worldview Ministries. I just want to mention what's going on with a couple of our projects. And if you didn't pick up one of our booklets, please do so. Um, the, the nine projects we have in six different countries are highlighted throughout that book. And uh, the Mahdi Project, which you, which you support, and I'm grateful for your support, not only for that project, but for two or three of us who served with Worldview. <clears throat> the, uh, the John and Romans for the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the Book of Romans, they just submitted to me the final files for what we call a back translation check. And when we get that file back and, and, the, and the final approval has been given to that, we're going to be printing probably three to 5,000 copies of John and Romans for the Mahdi people. And then we're, perhaps we are two-thirds of the way through the rest of the New Testament. And uh, maybe in, in two more years, I'm just estimating here, but maybe two more years, we'll be finished with the New Testament in the Mahdi language. And that's exciting. We are in the process right now of formatting the Asang Kongso New Testament for Myanmar. And this is a people group that have never had the Bible in their language, uh, they were saved, or they were reached with the gospel well over 60 years ago by a, about a third-generation missionary from the, the, uh, the lineage of, of Adoniram Judson, a, a third-generation convert from Adoniram, Adoniram Judson's ministry. And so they prayed for over 60 years for somebody to help them, come help them get the Bible in their language. And God gave us the privilege of, trans, uh, of training a young man named Rama, who, who has served with us faithfully now, after he graduated from our, our institute in India, he served with us since 2014, and the New Testament is finished. And we're formatting it right now, and actually Pastor Barkley is the one helping us with that formatting. And I just yesterday got an email back, or two days ago, got an email back from Rama with some of the questions I had about certain formatting choices and how it's laid out on the page and all, and all of those things. So I'll be resubmitting that back to Brother Barkley, uh, and he'll, uh, he'll work on that. Um, you know, it's quite amazing because, because uh, Rama submits to me a, uh, and this has gone through multiple, multiple checks, okay? It's been a, a seven-year process. But <clears throat> he submits to me a Word document with the entire New Testament text in it, just one Word document. And I pass that on to Pastor Barclay, uh, the former pastor of this church, and he, he emailed me the next day, and he said, I had about an hour to work on this yesterday, and I think with another hour on Monday, I can finish up the first. I'm just shaking my head like, the whole New Testament formatted in a couple hours? You know, just incredible. So uh, he's very quick to work on this stuff, and we thank the Lord for his help with it. And I told him, you know, now that he's pastoring there in Milford, I said, I said um, you're very busy. You have a lot of ministries you're overseeing and responsible for. I'll be glad to look for someone else to help us with this. He said, no, no, I want to help with this. 
So we thank the Lord for him and his help. And uh, we'll be printing that, Lord willing. And I would ask you to pray about that because we are, uh, we are not able to print inside Myanmar. Um, three years ago, there was a military coup, and it's just been a brutal, chaotic situation. Uh, I don't know how many thousands of Burmese people and Chin people and other people groups, Karen people in that, that uh, country have died because the military is trying to quell any possible opposition to the military's authority. And they've, they've bombed villages. Uh, they have come in and burned houses and churches and just shot people at random. Uh, early on in the, in the military coup, in the city of, of Yangon, used to be called Rangoon, uh, but in that capital city, uh, a guy would get on his bicycle and go to town to get food for his family and just never come back again. And just a very, very sad situation. So we can't print in Myanmar. We can't print anywhere else and ship into Myanmar. Uh, because of the, the, they won't let supplies come in. They don't let things come across the border like that. So literally, we're going to have them smuggled across the border. And we're going to print them in India, and there's a certain part there where they're used to just getting things across. And so that's, that's going to involve uh, our praying for the security and safety of all those people involved in that. I think we're going to print 4,000 copies at first. And after they, the people have had it for a while and been able to study God's word in their own language, no doubt they will find places that there's a spelling error here, there's a grammar mistake here, and we'll have to print more copies at a later printing. So, so please pray for the Myanmar project. The Lang Mai project in North India, which is in Manipur, uh, way up in the northeast side of India, northeast corner of India. That project is probably two years away from printing the entire New Testament. And then, of course, Nathan and Alicia, you'll get an update from them. I think it's tomorrow night, right? Um, and uh, they, uh, they just returned to Armenia on March the 15th. We had privilege to spend some time with them just a few days before they went back, and we sure do thank the Lord for them. They're just, they're just solid gold people, and we, we love them with all of our hearts. And many others who serve with us, the Overton family that you support, they just got back from India. Uh, our graduation at our institute there took place on March the 10th. It's always the same day every year. And then right after that, they're able to leave and come back to the States for almost three months before they head back to start the next school year. And so we'll get to see them on Easter Sunday, Lord willing, and we're looking forward to that. You can see from a handout, how many of you uh, did not, anybody did not get a handout for tonight? Just a little half-page sheet for the message tonight. Anybody didn't get one? Got one over here, Brother Shane. Thank you very much. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to divide this message that I normally preach in one service. I'm going to divide it into two parts. And I asked the pastor at lunch today, I said, did I, did I stop preaching on time? And he said, you made me look bad because you stopped sooner than I usually stop. Uh, so to, I don't think tonight's message is going to be long. And every time I say that, my wife says, you should never say that um, because we don't know. But I am taking a sermon and splitting it in half. So I'm hoping it will be a little shorter, okay? <clears throat> Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you for the power of your word. And that is truly what we are resting in tonight. This chapter we're going to look at is a powerful portion of scripture. I pray you'll help us tonight as we unfold what's in it and we make personal application to our lives we thank you for calling us and commissioning us to serve in your great work in this world. 
help us to take up our part as we should, see our responsibility in it, and, and, and do it, fulfill it. I pray for your help now and your spirit's fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to see this statement, which you have heard from me before. I want you to see it on the screen. God is on a mission to reveal His glory and extend His grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. God is on a mission to reveal His glory and extend His grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. That's my summary of the whole Bible. That's my summary of what God's doing in this world and has been doing in this world since the, the, the day of creation. And, of course, that plan was ordained in an eternity past. It didn't just start a creation. But this is the work of God in the world. That is what the Bible is all about. So when we open the Bible, we can go to just about any place in the Bible. You ever heard this before? You, you can find Jesus on every page. You ever heard that before? You can find, you can find um, uh, uh, the work of God on every page of the Bible. And I think you can go to any story in the Bible. You can go to any passage in the Bible. And somehow it is going to be connected to this statement right here. Somehow what you're reading is related to the mission of God. To reveal His glory, to spread His fame and His name to every kindred, tribe, and tongue and invite them to experience His grace, extending His grace to them. And we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a chapter that, that defines for us our role in the mission of God. This morning we, we talked about being sent by Jesus Christ. We have been sent into this world to glorify God, to, to reconcile, help reconcile men to God. And so what, what is our clearly defined role? You say, well, I, I'm sent into this world. What does that mean for me personally? I think 2 Corinthians 5 answers that. This chapter addresses our perception of Jesus Christ and His work in the world. It addresses our perception of people and our relationship with people in light of the mission of God. And it addresses our perception of ourselves and my role in the mission of God and in the plan of God. So I'm going to do something unusual here. I want to read the entire chapter. And then we're going to focus in tonight on, on verses 11, um, I'm sorry, verses 9 and following. And we'll get there in a few minutes. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that, be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing to, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. 
For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion of glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. At first reading of that chapter, if you don't take time to meditate on it, you might be tempted to think that this is just a random series of subjects. Paul goes from verses 1 through 8 talking about this dissolving house we live in and the longing for our eternal body, our eternal glorified body. And he speaks in those verses of, of, of the desire to be with the Lord, that we're absent from the body, we're, we're present with the Lord. And then he jumps to verses 9 through 11, he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And then he jumps from, from, from there to verses 12 through 15, and he talks about our ministry and the fact that we are constrained by the love of Christ. And we are focused on proper doctrine and truth. And then he jumps from that, verses 16 through 19, talking about new creatures in Christ, people that have been changed by the power of the gospel. And then he jumps to another subject in verses 20 and 21, and he says that we are ambassadors of the message of the gospel. Now, at first glance, you might think that's just a random series of subjects that are unrelated to each other, but I'd like you to note the links in this chapter, pulling all of these subjects into one grand conclusion. Notice in verse 1, the first three words of the verse is, for we know, for we know. If you were to go back to, uh, that really does hearken us back to chapter 4, we won't read them, but if you read verses 16 through 18, it speaks of the perishing of the outward man and how the inward man is renewed day by day. The inward man is sustained by an eternal view. And because of that, we know that we live in a dissolving house and that someday we're going to be clothed, on, clothed with that which is eternal. Notice in verse 6, you see the word therefore. And you've heard this many times probably. When you see therefore, you need to ask yourself what it's there for. So, therefore, links verse 6 and following with verses 1 through 5. So, this is not just jumping to a new subject. He's saying here, because of what I anticipate, I'm looking forward to the day when I'm freed from this temporary body and I get to move into my eternal home. And because of that, 
He says in verse 9, notice this word. I'm sorry, verse, verse 8, he says we're confident of that. Uh, willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And then he, then he has another link here in verse 9. Wherefore, we labor. Since I know this life is temporary, and someday I'm going to be with him eternally, I'm very confident of that fact, and because of that, I'm laboring for him. I'm laboring, and he uses the phrase here, to be accepted of him. That doesn't mean I'm trying to earn his favor, I'm trying to earn his acceptance. It means that I'm in right standing with him. I'm going to spend eternity with him, so I'm going to labor on his behalf. I want to serve him while I live this life. And then if you jump down to verse uh, 11, knowing therefore, and he links this next subject to the previous one. And we'll come back to that thought for our message tonight. But look at verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. And we're going to talk about that in part two. Verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ. All these things are building up on each other, are they not? And then, as, as if you've done this before, probably, when you're trying to convince someone of something and you give them fact number one and fact number two and fact number three, and once you've laid out your case, you might say these two words. Now then, and that's exactly what he does in verse 20. If you understand these previous seemingly random subjects, but they're not random, they're linked together very strongly. You come all the way down to verse 20, because of all that, now then, we are ambassadors. We live in a dissolving house, and there's a judgment coming. And I know what the truth is, and I want to be accepted of him. I want to be in right standing. I want to serve him as he has ordained me to do so. And I know that the gospel can change anybody's life, verse 17. Now then, I'm an ambassador of God. I am an ambassador for Christ, it says in that text. So, these truths all come down to the thought and the theme of compelling us as ambassadors. Notice it doesn't say we should be ambassadors or we should strive to become ambassadors, but we are ambassadors. We've been sent into this world, right? To the whole world for the purpose of making disciples by the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Now, these, th this whole context leads us to that conclusion. Let me define, uh, governmentally speaking, what an ambassador is. An ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a country as an official representative to a foreign country. It is a person who acts as a representer or a representative or a promoter of a, sp a specified activity. It is the highest ranking representative of one country to another. Nobody has more rank or authority in a foreign country than the ambassador of the United States. In times of hostility, listen to this, the ambassador represents a place of safety, even in a place of danger. And one of the, one of the ambassador's main roles is maintain, creating and maintaining peaceful, right relationship between his country and the country in which he serves. That's what an ambassador does. In the spiritual realm, our Father is the sympathetic, loving, gracious, merciful King who has sent us to represent 
the throne of grace. And our role in this world is to help create and maintain a peaceful relationship with the subjects of earth, with the king that we serve. Are you with me tonight? So this text, I believe, gives us a biblical description of an ambassador. And I'd like to walk through that with you tonight and tomorrow night, and let's see how we measure up. And so the first part I want to give you tonight is called the ambassador's motivations. The ambassador's motivations. And we're going to look at verses, uh, verses 10 through 15. Before I give you point number one, I want to read verses 10 and 11 again for you. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men that we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Motivation number one, there's three thoughts I want to give you under this main point. The terror of the Lord. Say, what would motivate me to be a good ambassador? What would motivate me to strive to create and maintain peace between my uh, heavenly king and the subjects among which I serve, the people among which I serve in this foreign land? And by the way, this world is not our home. Can I get an amen right there? The terror of the Lord. Now, this is kind of strange here. We're talking about being ambassadors, and Paul says, the judgment seat of the Lord and the terror of the Lord. What do these things have to do with being an ambassador? I don't know about you, but when I read the words judgment seat, we must all appear before the judgment seat. When I hear those words, I, I kind of default in my mind. If you just read it at first glance, you might do the same. I kind of default in my mind, for a long time I did at least, to this Christ-rejecting world having to face our God and be condemned to hell. And I think the most dreadful words that anybody will ever hear will be, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What a horrible, horrible word to hear. But this text is not written to lost people. And this text is not about the great white throne judgment. It's written to the church. And you can note the, use, the constant use of the word we, 24 times in this chapter, we. Ten times in this chapter, our and us. So he says in, in this verse, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one, and if you wanted to, you could add in there, every one of us may receive the things done in our or his body. This is about us. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ. It's the same judgment seat he refers to, Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 15. And in verse 13 of that text, it says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if you go back later and you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, you'll find that we are, our lives are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, and every man is to be a wise builder the kind of works that we put upon that foundation. And someday they're going to go through the fire of the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to come out to be either gold, silver, or precious stones, and precious stones rather, or wood, hay, and stubble. And then we find this phrase, or we see this phrase in verse 11, in reference to that event, 
knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. The word terror there is, 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 is defined as having exceeding fear, powerful fear. Have you ever been really, really afraid of something? Have you ever had a moment of fear in your life that deeply affected your emotion? Your, your, you, you, you broke out of a sweat, maybe? Your heart rate just went through the roof? Have you ever had a moment of terror in your life? My, I still remember this like it was yesterday. My wife and I were asleep one night in the house in uh, Ohio where I pastored in Mansfield, Ohio. We were asleep. It was probably 1 o'clock in the morning. And, and right outside or right next to our bed was a sliding glass door that went out the back, the back side of the house onto a, a large deck. And I'm laying in the bed. There's the sliding glass door. And right outside, I heard the loudest crash. Like someone, like someone took a baseball bat and tried to bust their way through that sliding glass door. And there was, for me, a moment of terror. Just like that, I was out of bed and on my feet, and the curtains are drawn over the window, and I did maybe the dumbest thing I've ever done. I don't know what's outside that window. I don't know who's trying to get in this house, but I slung the curtain back in the window. <laughs> but I was, I was shaking. I had no idea what that was. Well, come to find out, on the back, back side of the house was a, a large uh, light that would come on at night, illuminate the backyard, and it just let go of the roof up there, and it just crashed all over the deck, busted in a thousand pieces. But that was a moment of terror for me. You ever had a moment like that? That's how Paul describes us standing before Jesus at the judgment seat. Now listen, this is not terror because Jesus is going to be harsh and cruel in his judgment of us. The standard of judgment has already been set. We know what we're going to be judged by, right? So this isn't about Jesus' cruelty or his harsh spirit or his, his anger toward us. This is, my, this is my opinion of this phrase right here and my understanding of this phrase. The terror is going to be when we stand there and we realize the vanity of so much of what we invested in in this life. Solomon had everything. Money, possessions, relationships, he had all. And you know what his summation of it all was? It's all what? It's all vanity. I think there are going to be believers standing at this judgment seat of Christ for the first time recognizing that all the money they put into was a total waste. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that hobbies are sinful. I'm not suggesting that some of the things we enjoy. We were talking about sports this afternoon at lunchtime. I like, I've been following the NCAA tournament, basketball tournament. I don't think God gets angry with us for, for, for enjoying those kind of things. But I think where we do err is when those things become important to us and they take us away from the priority of God's mission. I think we're going to stand there someday and know that this whole mission of God was about glorifying Him and bringing people into His kingdom. And I spent so much money on, you fill in the blank. I gave so many hundreds or thousands of hours to, you fill in the blank. The kind of fear Paul is talking about here, this word terror, what he's talking about here, is the kind of fear, listen to me, that moves you to action. 
So I believe what this is telling us is that when we understand what is at stake, when we understand where we're going to stand and who we're going to stand before, we understand that God is doing something in this world, that He has a mission. And listen to this word. You've heard it how many times, how many thousands of times. He has co-missioned us. We're co-laborers in His mission. We understand all this. We realize that we're going to stand before Him someday and answer for our priority to the mission of God. It's terror. You see, there, there is a mission that dominates the heart of God, and we've been enlisted in that mission, and someday I'm going to stand before Him and answer to Him for how much I gave to His mission. Shouldn't that motivate me to be a good ambassador? When we realize that we live in a temporal house, and someday I'm going to, I'm going to be transported either by death or by the coming of the Lord, I'm going to be transported from this dissolving house into an eternal body and stand before him and I'm going to answer to him for how I lived in this temporal body. And what is the action we are moved to? It's so clearly spelled out here. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, what does that make us do? When we realize this and understand this, what does it make us do? We persuade men. We persuade men. What does this word persuade mean? It means we feel a sense of urgency and passion about the mission of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means we understand that time is short and eternity is long and men are lost and the gospel is true and the world must hear or they're going to spend eternity in hell. And he died for them because he loves them. And he sent me to go tell them. And I didn't give my life to it. The terror of the Lord. And when we understand this picture, we're no longer shy about the gospel. We're no longer fearful of people. We were talking about this at lunchtime too. It's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to approach somebody and say, may I tell you about Jesus Christ? Can I share the good news of the gospel with you? You know what kind of world we live in. They don't want to hear it. In many places in this world, just opening your mouth and speaking of Jesus is going to bring uh, persecution upon you. But the word persuade here means that we convince someone to believe something. It means we convince them to believe and do something through our sustained efforts to speak with them. We set out the facts. We answer their objections. We strive to convince them. We talk to them as long as it takes. We preach or we teach. Listen, passing out a gospel tract, sometimes that's all you can do with someone, isn't it? But sometimes it needs to go further than that. You can hand them the tract and, and say, God, please use this to plant the seed in their heart. But somewhere along the line, they need their questions answered. They need their objections responded to. They need the 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 Questions in their heart to be answered by someone who knows the Lord and knows the truth. And sometimes that takes a while. And if I understand someday I'm going to stand before God. And I'm going to answer to Him for the souls that I encountered who needed Him. And His Spirit was prompting me to speak. 
and I remain silent. I don't think that's going to be a pretty day. Are you with me tonight? I don't think that's going to be a joyful time. Now, all of us would like to think that our works are going to be put into the fire of that judgment and come out on the other side sparkling and shining and silver and precious stones and gold and all that. But I, I think we ought to think seriously here about what we're investing our lives in. That's the whole purpose of this passage. And understanding that gives me the urgency and the passion to invest whatever is necessary in the lives of other people to help bring them to Jesus. The terror of the Lord. Paul said in Acts 20, 24, None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Number one, the terror of the Lord. Number two, the love of Christ. Get verse 14, please. <clears throat> and we're going to come back to 12 and 13 in a few minutes. But Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. We'll get the rest of that verse later as well. But Constraineth means to be confined, to be held in. And listen, believe, this, believe it or not, included in this definition of the word constraineth is the word besieged. I, I preached last time I was here from Psalm 46 where the city of Jerusalem was besieged by uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib and all of his army. And they were, you could use this phrase, they were hemmed in, right? They were confined. They, they had, there was nothing else they could do except stay in Jerusalem and try to make it. You can't change cities now because there's an army surrounding you and you have nowhere to go and no way of escape. That's what Paul's talking about here, about the love of Christ. His, his love just hems me in to this work of the mission of God. I, I, don't, I, I have no other choice. I can't do anything else with my life. I can't invest myself in, in things outside the mission of God. I can't invest myself in all those things because I understand his love. And that motivates me as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. There are two possible interpretations here, and I believe this one is the accurate one. I believe Paul is speaking of Christ's love for us. And the proof of that is in the, in the verse, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, and verse 15, and that he died for all. It's speaking in relationship here, love and his death on the cross. So I believe that's the accurate interpretation. And, and, and if, you, if, if that is the accurate interpretation, then how in the world could that love be measured? What is the depth of that love? What is the width and breadth and height of that love? He loved us enough to die in our place. He, the sinless Son of God, was willing to be hung on a cross and my sin put on Him. How could you meditate on that for five minutes and not be overwhelmed by His love? You know, the Bible says, uh, and I don't have the reference in front of me, but in Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were a mighty nation. As a matter of fact, you were fewer in number than most nations. But I chose you 
And this is basically what God said to Israel, I chose you because I loved you. And I made a promise to Abraham that through you all the nations would be blessed. In Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, in Ephesians 3.18, he said that ye may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, listen to the next three words, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You know what he means by that? He means this love is beyond our comprehension, but I wish you could just understand it a little bit. I wish you could just be gripped by it a little bit. Stepping out of heaven into this sin-cursed world because, John 3:16, for God so loved the world. Some say that Paul might be speaking of our love for Christ. I don't think specifically that's what this is talking about, but if he was, if he was speaking here of his love for Jesus, here's what he was saying, I love him more than my own life. He loved me, what does what the epistle of John say? We love him because he first what? He loved us. He loved me, so I love him. I, I want to walk the same life of obedience to the Father that Jesus walked because I love him. And I want to live with the same selfless abandon that Jesus lived, even to the death of the cross. And I want to lay down my life for the sake of his glory and his name and his mission. And he said it this way in Philippians 1, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, whether uh, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The love of Christ constraineth us. If, if he's talking about Christ's love for us, or he's talking about our love for Christ, in Paul's life, they both have the same effect. It means that Paul was hemmed in by Christ's love for him, and he was hemmed in by his love for Christ. What he's saying here is, Knowing the terror of the Lord, I'm going to become a persuader. And knowing the love of Christ, I am constrained to give it my all. He loved me so much, I can't comprehend it. I can't understand it. And I love him so much, I want him to have all of me. I'll take up my cross. I'll die to self. I'll follow him. And it, it, this all really leaves me with no alternative but to wholly give my life to the mission of God. The terror of the Lord and the love of Christ. And here's the third motivation for the ambassador. The conviction of truth. <clears throat> the conviction of truth. Look at verse 14 again, please. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. Now what is that talking about right there? It, it says, we thus judge, in the middle of verse 14, because we thus judge that he died for all. Let me summarize what that says. It's the gospel. Everybody's a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for all of them. And that's the only way they can be saved. You believe that tonight? Can you say amen? You believe that's the gospel? This phrase here, we thus judge, it means, oh, we've decided. Now, it's not ours to decide. But it means that based on my understanding of who Jesus is and who God is and what he's done for us and what he's offered to us and his gospel spelled out in the scriptures, I am convinced, I am convicted 
The evidence has been examined, and I believe the truth of God's Word. The Bible's right. The Gospel's true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him. And I'm convinced that the only way they can be forgiven of sin and reconciled with God is through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Nobody has to go to hell because He died for all of us. Salvation is available to anyone who will choose it. We've been persuaded of the truth, Paul is saying, and this persuasion moves us to persuade others. Do we believe the gospel? Do we really believe it's the only way to be saved? I was preaching in a Baptist church, a good Baptist church that's had good preaching for decades. And I was speaking of those who've never heard the gospel and those who never accept and trust Jesus Christ for their soul's salvation will spend eternity in hell. And a lady walked up to me after the service in this good Baptist church, and she said, I just can't buy that. It just doesn't seem right to me. If we believe the gospel, you know what it should motivate us to do? Not to question whether or not somebody who's never heard can, can, uh, still has to spend eternity in hell, but it ought to persuade us to make sure they understand how they can avoid spending eternity in hell. You know what Adrian Rogers said one day, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, but he said, he said the question is not, um, does a person have to go to hell if they've never heard of Jesus? The question is, you who have heard of Jesus, are you saved if you're not willing to tell them? See, the gospel makes the Great Commission absolutely necessary because men have to know Jesus. So men have to tell them. That's the way he planned it. It's the way he chose it. So before we finish verse 15, and we will in a moment, I want to go back to verses 12 and 13. And here's what I want you to see. These things that motivate us, the terror of the Lord, the love of Christ, and the conviction of truth, these things that motivate us are going to cause us to be persuaders of men for the gospel's sake. And in the process of that, we will be misunderstood. Our motives will be misconstrued. And he shows us that in three different ways here in verses 12 and 13. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf. In other words, this isn't about me. That ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. You know what you're going to be accused of if this is your motivation and you become a persuader of men? You're going to be accused of being proud. Well, who do you think you are telling me that your Jesus is the only way? Buddhism was around a thousand years before your Jesus even showed up on this earth. Who do you think you are telling me that I have to trust your God if I want to be saved? There's got to be some self-seeking motive behind what you're saying and doing. There must be something in this for you. And Paul speaks of those who glory in appearance, but not in truth, not in heart. So we might be accused of being proud. Notice verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. We might be accused of being crazy. Now, some of us have been accused of being crazy for other reasons. But this is the same word. When Paul says beside ourselves, it's the same phrasing in, in Acts chapter 26, I think it is, when he stands before Festus and he says, oh, Fest, uh, he says to Festus, Oh, I'm not mad, as you suppose. Yeah, I'm not crazy. I, I've got a right mind here. We might be accused of being crazy, uh, narrow-minded. Really? Just one way? 
your way is the only way? Paul was more than willing to be thought of as a fool for Christ, wasn't he? 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 and 10, he said, For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. And then he said this, We are fools for Christ's sake. Ye are wise in Christ, we are weak, ye are strong, we are, on, are, we, we are, ye are strong, ye are honorable, but we are despised. Paul was a little crazy. You have to believe that. You study his life. Paul was stoned at Lystra, and he got up and walked away from it, and about a week and a half later or two weeks later, he healed from some of his injuries, and he came back to Lystra and started preaching again. He was, he was a little crazy. <laughs> you know what he knew? He knew the terror of the Lord, and he knew the love of Christ, and he knew the conviction of the truth. And he said, I'm going back. i got one more opportunity to persuade those people. Richard Wormbrand, in his story of being tortured for his faith, said the, the communist guards in the prison told us that if we preached the gospel, they would beat us. He said, we were very happy to preach the gospel. We made a deal with them. He said, we were very happy to preach the gospel, and they were very happy to beat us, so we were all happy. Got one more chance persuade them. I spoke with a missionary to Egypt a few, uh, some time ago and living in a very dangerous situation. And there are so many places in the world that it's not safe to preach and proclaim Christ. It's not safe to try to win people, to proselytize them as other governments call it. But with his wife and his children there, he said, I'm just striving to persuade men for Christ's sake. There's nothing in it for him, nothing in it for his family. As a matter of fact, they're at very much risk. We'll be accused of being proud. We'll be accused of being crazy. Verse 13 also says, second part of the verse, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. We might be accused of just being too serious about life. Sober means to be serious-minded. You take life too seriously, you ought to just have fun and live it up. But listen, our, our motivation will disregard whatever they say about us because I'm so convinced that I'm going to stand before him someday and I'm so overwhelmed by his love and I'm so sure of the message I preach, I'm going to work to persuade you of its truth. They're going, don't, don't matter. It doesn't matter what you think of me. All of this, I'm going to bring point, part one to a close right now. All of this naturally leads us, naturally leads us to an understanding that's very clear. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You know, that word henceforth means, means from now on. Now, you may not consider that you've been a good ambassador up to this point in your Christian life, but from now on, you need to be one. We don't live for ourselves. That's the, that's the conclusion of this first part. We live for him and for his mission. We're compelled to persuade men. We give our lives to convince others. Listen to me. We step out of our safe world, and we don't hide from the risk. 
We don't fear looking crazy or foolish. We're committed, we're motivated, we're driven to boldness for the glory of God. What did the apostles pray throughout the book of Acts? Give us boldness that we may preach your name. Passion for God and his mission overrules all of our selfish considerations. Why do we go to the mission field? Why do we send missionaries on the boards, the whiteboards over in the room where we had our meal a few minutes ago? You have your missionaries that you support listed there. Why do we send missionaries to those places in the world? And why do we have to tell those people about the gospel? Why do we have to go to these people who have a religion already and they're devoted to their gods? Doesn't their sincerity count for something? We go because we're going to face God someday and answer for whether we went. We go because we're overtaken, we're overwhelmed, we're compelled. We're hemmed in by His love, and we realize this is the only thing of value I can give my life to. And we go because we're convinced that without Jesus, they're lost, and spend, they'll spend eternity in hell. And we go because we believe that the power of His name and His love can break the hardest hearts and can break through the darkest deception and can open the eyes of the most spiritually blind. We have a man in our ministry who serves in Central Asia, 10,000 miles from home. And you ask, is it selling out everything you own and uprooting your family and moving 10,000 miles away to a land of strange people and strange food and strange culture, and you're trying to translate a book for them, you call the Bible, and they don't even have a written language, so you're going to spend years developing their language before you can ever begin translating the Bible and trying to win them to Christ? Isn't that a little crazy? Yeah, it's crazy but we go because they don't know who he is, and we do. And we're compelled to persuade them. Would you bow your heads with me, please? One writer on the subject of missions said, we have three choices, go, sin, or disobey. And the Apostle Paul said, we are ambassadors, and may I say to you kindly this evening, we have two choices. We become persuaders of men for the gospel's sake, or we walk in disobedience. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of this chapter. I don't think we did it justice, but I pray that there's enough here that has convicted, spoken to our hearts. May these motivations that Paul laid out for us motivate us to give our lives in a greater way to the mission of God. You have your way in each heart, I pray in Jesus' name.